Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Well, this is the last in our series on the book of Nehemiah. We're going to stop at chapter 9. You might be able to find that. Do let us know how God has spoken to you through this series, which I know already many people have found helpful through the year of rebuilding. Um, because for us, we know the rebuilding is far from done as our nation, as a city, as a church, and as individuals. God wants us to, to rebuild together with everything that's going on in the world right now. We know prayer has to be the centre of it all. If anything that we do is going to matter or last, and in this passage, we actually find the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. I won't have time to read it all. But the first two verses tell us this happened at the end of the seven-day celebration called the Festival of Booths or Tabernacles. Ezra, the priest, had called the people of Israel to observe the festival as God had commanded. And this was happening for the first time for so many years. Some of them have never done it. But now the walls and gates were back in place and so they could come together again after being scattered and scared for so long. And we know a little of what that feels like, don't we? So it was a time of celebration. And every time we meet together, I'm like, Lord, I don't ever want to take this for granted ever again. But after the celebration, there also comes a time of confession for them. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood in their places and they confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. That's what it says in Nehemiah chapter 9 verses 1 to 2. How much time do we give to this, to invite God to look at our hearts? The people are going to look at what's happened in the past and what's gone wrong, but they're also asking, what have we done wrong? What have I done wrong? They're not eating because they feel grief and regret and shame and they put on sackcloth and ashes on their heads to show the outside how they feel. They didn't complain about what had been done to them by their enemies or how hard a time they'd had in life so far. They got serious about God's holiness. And when that happened, they confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors as well, because they were very aware that the Bible says the evil of one generation is often going to be passed along to the next generation too. Why did they go then from celebration to confession? We don't find out until the very end of the prayer in verses 36 and 37 when they say to God, but see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. And we are in great distress. These people recognise something that we hate to own up to because we don't want to take personal responsibility for it. They see that sin has its consequences. As Ezra has been reading the Bible to them and they've been praying and worshipping for days, the connection becomes very clear. The reason their world, their city, their nation, families are in such a mess, the reason people are in bondage is that they've made change themselves of evil, wickedness and disobedience to God and his word and his ways. 
And when we look at the world right now, look at our nation, our city, look at ourselves today, what's really changed? We're rushing headlong on the road to nowhere, led by greed and lack of love for God and our neighbour. The walls of common beliefs about what's right and wrong have been torn down. The gates of ethical boundaries have been destroyed and burned with fire. Cheat with money, just don't get caught. Cheat on your wife, just practice safe sex. I read a post linking the classic seven deadly sins to how we spend our time these days. It said, envy and Facebook, sloth and Netflix, pride and Instagram, wrath and Twitter, gluttony and Deliveroo, lust and Tinder, greed and, well, it's everywhere, isn't it? We have access to more knowledge than any other generation, but no idea what to do with it. So we live without wisdom. We have clothes and computers and cars, everything but a conscience. A high-tech, low-life society who can buy anything at the touch of a button, but I've no idea what's really worthwhile or of value, so we're slaves to our impulses in a digital economy. What can we, the people of God, as they were the people of God, do to be free and to live free and help other people be free too? Well, they gathered before God and prayed, they fasted, they wept, they asked for God's mercy. They didn't go around blaming other people, they looked at themselves and it says they confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers, their ancestors. What's gone wrong in the past that's still affecting us. They turned their celebration to confession. But after we read on, we can see that later came more celebration. Verse 3 says, they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day and spent another fourth in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. That's three hours of confession and then three hours of praise. Wow. The Levites divided themselves into two groups. It names some who were standing on the stairs leading up to the water gate and others who were on a platform on the opposite side of the square. One group is shouting out praise. Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. The other group, this other group are confessing sins and speaking about that. And then you have this other group who answer them and over again they, de they declare the compassion and mercy of our God. This is how it continues. Verse 5, as you read to the end at verse 37, gives us the actual words of the prayer. But I'm just going to read some with you so we can see some main themes. This can help us learn how to pray, how we as individuals and together as a community, we can confess sins and it's powerful to do that. And we can celebrate the mercy of our God. So it starts with praise. We've been using the Lord's Prayer as a building block prayer in our rebuilding and you know that starts with praising our Father in heaven too. Well here, in verses 5 to 15, everybody praises the Lord, the giver of life and the maker of everything. It says, blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord, you made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. If you don't know how to pray, start by praising God. Praise him that he gave you the breath to praise him in the first place and pray to him. See, there's no such thing as a self-made man or woman. We didn't create ourselves. 
There are miracles that are going on right now in every cell of our bodies. All the processes happening without you or me even thinking about them as your heart beats again. You don't get to control your internal organs, but we can praise God for it all. Then we remember his promises. Verses 7 and 8 talk about how God chose Abraham and changed his name and called him and made him a covenant, promises to bless him. Our God keeps his promises. He calls people. He makes covenants with people. A covenant is meant to be an unbreakable promise that two parties make towards each other. We're never to enter into them lightly. Marriage, of course, is meant to be a covenant, not just a contract. Kings in that time made covenants. When they came and ruled over a nation, they said, if you will obey in this way and that way, then I will be your king and I will do this for you and I will do that for you. Today, we're inviting people to consider a covenant to join Ivy as a member. You can do that by looking at ivychurch.org forward slash membership. But we ask people to only do this prayerfully and carefully, making a commitment because we actually make membership a covenant before God. And it's not good to be a promise breaker. In some of our services, we'll be praying for some of you who have become members too. So, if you choose, if you decide to become a member here, you're promising together with others, among other things, to be part of a small group, to connect relationally and to find a place to serve joyfully. You're saying you're gonna give generously and regularly and you're gonna invite other people boldly to come and find Jesus here. All of this is a serious commitment and a covenant. You need to have it ratified that you're serious by somebody else who's already leading here at Ivy who will propose you because it's a high call. Then, as we read on through the prayer, we see that as we say yes to it, then we realise all that God has done for us, his side of the promise. In verses 9 to 12, they praise God because he's heard the cry of their ancestors in Egypt and delivered them from sin and slavery. They say he split the sea and he led them through all the way, wonderfully, miraculously, powerful. And he's done things like that for us too, hasn't he? I remember hearing about a young bloke who became a Christian and all his mates mocked him when he said that he now belonged to Jesus. Ha! Do you believe all those miracles? They asked him. Yes, I do, he replied. Oh, do you believe Jesus turned water into wine? Yes, I believe it, he said. Well, how could he, they asked. And he said, I don't know how, but I do believe it because at my house, he's changed beer into furniture. See, when God calls us, and makes promises to us and saves us and starts to change our hearts, all kinds of miracles happen. So as you read on, they praised God for his provision. They say, you came down on Mount Sinai, you spoke to them from heaven, you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands and decrees and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. Hasn't our God been good to us? Here, they recognise he cared for them. He showed them how to live as free people and not slaves. He gave them instruction for their own good. He gave them bread and water in the middle of a desert. And so they've been praising. But now the confessing group takes up the theme. And for the rest of the passage, we have this kind of dance off between confession and praise. 
confession and praise. One group cries out confessing sins. The other group answers praising God for his mercy. The confessors say, but, but, our forefathers became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commandments. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles that you performed among them. That's how sin always starts and grows, isn't it? Pride, ingratitude, forgetting how good God is and how good he's been to us. They actually wanted to go back to slavery in Egypt, remember? They forgot how bad it really was because they longed for its sensual pleasures. But then the praisers get praising. In verses 17 and 18, they say, But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. That's who our God is. This is what he's like. He's not angry. He's not judgy. He's compassionate, patient, waiting, longing for rebels and idolaters like us to return so he can bless them again. So they remember all the years he's looked after them in verse 21. It says, even so, for 40 years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. When did you last count your blessings like this? All the ways we see God look after us. Do we notice how we take God's blessings for granted? We concentrate our attention on what we don't have. And we don't have it because we deserve it. Even now, God looks at the world and in our hearts and he sees acts of cruelty and violence, anger, greed, thoughtlessness, immorality, abuse. God sees it all. Our sins deserve punishment and death, but that's not what he offers us. Romans 6 verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus came to live and die and live again, to bring us life, not death, because the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's so patient and long-suffering with us. He lets us experience some consequences to get our attention to bring us to repentance because of his kindness, but he doesn't wipe us out and he doesn't rub it in. He rubs it out. He's compassionate, merciful, caring, a loving God. And that's what these people are reminding one another of. And we need to remind ourselves of that too. If you read through the rest, you're gonna see over and over, confession and praise, confession and praise. But it's all about the previous generations until they get to verse 32. After the praisers say, for many years you were patient with them, by your spirit you admonished them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you handed them over to the neighbouring peoples. But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And then in verse 32, they stop talking about history and they look at their own lives. This is what we must do. They look at their own faults and sins in their own time, what they've done. And the pronouns change from they and them to us, to we and our, to their own generation. In all that's happened to us, they say, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Let me read that again. This is a true confession. This is what it looks like. In all that's happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. 
our kings, our leaders, our priests and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they, they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. Despite everything God did, whatever he does that's good for us, we turn away to. And then, as we saw before, they say they know that living in these sinful ways has made them slaves again. When they should be free, when they could be living free and for God. And now, when we look at our nation, when we see cities that we live in being torn apart by fear, hate and lies, or children being born into various kinds of slavery to the same, will we confess our sins? That's the only thing these people did that brought about a change. It wasn't that they rebuilt the wall or the gates. It was what they did when they met with God and they prayed, when they praised and when they confessed. Will we do what they did and will we ask God to move in power again in our day as now we confess our wrongdoing and praise him as we remember his compassion and mercy. The Bible says if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Nehemiah's friends teach us how to confess. They get very specific, personal and real. They say we did wrong Lord but you've acted faithfully all along. We did wrong we didn't pay attention to your laws. We disobeyed your words. And if God's ever going to change us, we have to own up and ask him to change us. Not just in some general way. Oh, if I've ever hurt anybody or if I've ever done something that I regret. No, no, that doesn't cut it. In the presence of a holy God, we are cut to the heart. There's no if in true confession. Lord, I blew it. I did it. I sinned against you when I did that. I did it my way, not your way. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins. The book of Proverbs says, whoever conceals his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. You've got to say, I've had enough of living like that. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, but if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from every kind of wrong. Confession and praise, confession and praise. If you want to give your life back to God now, come to him in the name of Jesus. Come or recommit to him. And as we confess our sins, let's get real about this. Let's get personal about this. I'm not going to rush this. I believe the Lord wants to speak to you, to speak to individual hearts, not just to groups. Here's an opportunity now for each of us as we come to the end of this series, just to sit and think about what God's been trying to tell us and quietly before the Lord confess directly and specifically the sins of our own life. And to pray with faith for forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. If it helps, Say these words out loud with me. In all that has happened to me, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while I did wrong. Please forgive me in the name of Jesus Christ. Wash me clean, make me whole. Set me free to serve you in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And after the confession comes the praise because our God hears and he heals. He forgives and he restores. Anybody who'll come to him with a broken and contrite heart. Lord, you are good and you are gracious and you are merciful. So help us worship you now and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org media.